Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, second reading is going to be taken from the book of 1 John, chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. So that's 1 John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Father God, we want to know you. We want to know the truth about you. And so we pray for your help that your spirit who caused these very words to be written would enable us now to understand them and to trust and believe in them that we might live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, have a look up there, up that sort of mosaic picture thing up there, just to my right, your left. Have I breached the second commandment by pointing that out? It's an important question because if I have, I've brought down a generational curse on not just you, but your children, your grandchildren, and your great-great-great-grandchildren after them. Oh dear. Okay, what is covered by this commandment? Is that serious or, well, it's in a church, surely it's all right. Actually, I think what we'll see as we dig into God's word on this particular commandment is that it is about far more than just painting pictures about the Lord Jesus Christ. The basic point is this. 
When we meet with God, we meet with him on his terms. When we meet with God, we meet with him on his terms and not on our terms. That's the big headline statement, if you like. When we meet with God, we meet with him on his terms. Now, one of the key questions, I think, to... to to work through as we try to to wrestle with what does this command actually mean? We want to know what God's word means is what is the difference between the first two commands? How do they relate to one another? So verse 3 of Exodus 20, page 78, right at the top, you shall have no other gods before me. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. How do those two commands relate to one another? If you want a headline, it's this. The first command is about true worship of false gods. The second command is about false worship of the true God. So first command, true worship, false gods. Second command, false worship of true gods. It's a sort of helpful, it, it breaks down a little bit when you get too deep, but it basically is a helpful handle, which is basically to say the first, um, that God is the supreme being. He is the one who created every atom of every star and planet of the 200 billion plus galaxies in our universe. And as such, he is the one who is alone worthy of all of our obedience, our devotion, our adoration. And he is the one who made us to find fulfillment and satisfaction and joy and delight in him. And so the first command says, don't give the love and obedience that we ought to give to that God. Don't give it to anybody else, whether, whether a religious God, Allah, Buddha, or whether um, one of the good things that God gives us that we treat as God, family or career or financial security or whatever. To do so, to treat something else the way we ought to treat God, to love something else the way we ought to love God, to to seek satisfaction and fulfillment in something else the way that we ought to find it ultimately in God is wicked because the God of the Bible is the one true God. And it's profoundly dumb because the God of the Bible is the only true God. The second command then is how do we think about, how do we engage with, how do we worship this God, this true God? How do we approach him? And actually what we'll see is that the two commands are related because how I worship God impacts who I worship. How I worship impacts who I worship. Uh, Just a quick word about worship as we dive in. Um, So the Bible uses the word worship in a couple of ways, really. So Romans 12.1 is the dominant way, and the New Testament uses the word worship, which is, in view of God's mercy, offer your lives as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. In other words, out of thankfulness to God for Jesus saving us, serve God with everything with the way you work, the way you spend time and money, the way you treat other people who annoy you. In every area of life, serve God. That is worship. But the Bible also uses worship in a slightly different way, in a a religious way, as in worship is our conscious engagement with God. So it's not wrong to say we've come here to worship tonight, so long as we recognize we also walk out of those doors to worship tomorrow morning. Tonight, I mean, we're not not saying that long, don't worry. Um, as long as we get the the Bible uses the word worship in both ways and the second command is really about that second 
type of worship, gathered worship, conscious engagement with God worship. That's what's going on here. And verses uh, 4 to 5 contain the basic command. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Do not make an idol. Do not fashion for yourself an image of God in the form of anything created, whether a fish or a planet or an animal or even the highest form of God's creation, a man or a woman. Don't imagine and form an image of God that is anything like anything in all of creation. Don't do it. Why? 5b, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. God is a jealous God and that is a good thing. He's not jealous in the paranoid, pathetic, teenage, infatuated love affair jealousy. He is jealous in the rightful, holy, beautiful sense of he is a husband who's not going to allow some man at a bar to um, to spike his wife's drinks to try to seduce her. It's his wife. He'll protect her and he'll get very jealous and very angry if another man tries to seduce her. He knows that he alone can bring ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction and he's not lightly going to let us wander off and be seduced by others. It's a wonderful thing that he's jealous. Now, The problem we have with these verses is the whole kind of generational curse thing in the next couple of verses. It sounds such a loud alarm bells in our heads that we don't stop to think, hang on a second, there's a question we ought to be asking at this moment. But we're so busy thinking, gosh, generational curse, what's going on there that we just don't, we don't think logically. And the question we really ought to be asking is, hang on, why would making an image of this God make him jealous, which is about turning to other gods? I mean, I can understand if I, if I turn to worship another God that this God would get jealous. But why would he get jealous about me just making an image to help me worship him? You know, some of us are more artistic, more creative, and we connect better with visual art than we do with words. Why shouldn't people like us then use images, pictures, carvings, whatever, to, to help us connect with God? We're just wired that way. Why would that make God jealous? The problem is that whatever image we make, it won't be like God. Because God is not created. So the moment, the second, the instant that I view God as something solid, something physical, something created, I'm no longer helping me understand God and connect with God. I'm actually turning away from God to something else entirely. That is what is happening. Now, that is why God gets jealous. And rightly so, because when I turn to worship an image, when I turn to use an image, I'm not using this image to worship that God. I'm being diverted away from that God by this image. He is nothing like any image. He's an uncreated, unfathomable, pure spirit being. How do you 
How do you carve that? And that is why he gets jealous. When you break the second command, you always break the first command. In fact, actually, that's true of all the commands. We haven't got time to look at that. But as soon as you break one of the commands 2 to 10, you've broken the first command. Another, another discussion, another time. But a different way to engage with God will always lead you to a different God. That's why the second command is there. Okay, so how should we think about God? Flick forward to page 183 and Deuteronomy 4. The very top of page 183, Deuteronomy 4, verse 15. As Moses recounts what happened at Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, when God descended, and he says, page 183, Deuteronomy 4:15, you saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape. God chose to reveal himself through speaking through words. You see, words give definitive content to what God is like, to who he is. I can project whatever ideas I like about that Jesus. I can, I can decide what he's like because he's, he's not telling me, he's not revealing anything by just standing there painted on a wall. But when he speaks, there's certainty, there's clarity. Now, if this was a discussion rather than a sermon, it's not. Um, but if this was a discussion, someone would usually pipe up this. But hang on a second. This uncreated God reduced himself to a created form in Jesus Christ. So why is it wrong for me to, to make an image when God has done precisely that? He's shown us that he's happy to be reduced to a physical form. So surely it should be all right for me to do that. Well, it's half right. But the verse that you've got at the top of your, your service sheets on the front, um, Colossians 1, does say Jesus is the image of the invisible God. But how does Jesus reveal God to us? Let me ask it another way. What can you tell me about Jesus' physical appearance? What color hair did he have? What color eyes? How tall was Jesus? How much did he weigh? I don't know. We've got four entire Gospels, and yet we can't answer the most basic questions about what he looks like. Isn't that extraordinary? I mean, that's just bizarre. Can you imagine any account of the life of somebody where you get four entire biographies and no idea of what they look like at all? You see, even though God became a physical person, Jesus Christ, he ensured that when Jesus returned to heaven, he didn't have a, a statue carved for us to engage with or a painting painted of him. Instead, he had four verbal, spoken and then written accounts so that you and I could meet him and know him. That's what we learned in our second reading. Uh, flick up 1 John 1. It's on page uh, 1125. 1125. And John's point is that we know with certainty what God is like through Jesus Christ and we know that through his word now. That you and I engage with Jesus, the real physical, touchable Jesus, through his words. Look, uh, John, 1 John 1, page 1125. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, 
This we paint. This we carve. No, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Do you see that? We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so you may have fellowship with us. As in you share in our relationship with the tangible physical Jesus as you meet him in his word. Not as you look at a picture, not as you um, encounter a statue, but as you hear his word. That is how we we meet the real Jesus. Okay, um, we're still working through um, the meaning of the the commandment. We'll we'll stop there. We won't go into the implications just for a minute. Uh, What do we do with the, the whole generational curse thing? makes two points. Firstly, as we've seen a number of times in Exodus, sin doesn't stop with you. Your sins affect other people. They infect, they reach out. Sin has tentacles. Sin infects generations. It runs downstream. It doesn't stay where it is. Uh, The effects of selfishness and wickedness in your life will hurt other people who come after you. You, you see a father who's harsh and unloving to his children and so often you find those children then struggle to be loving parents themselves. Sin just affects down the generations. It's just a reality, but secondly, um, look at how much richer God's blessing is than his judgment. So he'll chase down, uh, there's a reality to sin, it goes down generations, God will root out sin all through the generations, but also God's grace is so much richer. Uh, sin can reach down three or four generations, God's grace and blessing pours down a thousand generations. That's the command, don't bow down to idols. Don't make out God is like anything in his creation. Don't, uh, don't paint a picture for us to worship in church. Okay, very few of us actually attempted to paint a picture to worship in church. Even fewer of us are capable of painting the sort of picture that would lead anybody to be tempted to worship. So what do we actually do? Where, where does this bite? I mean, this is the second commandment of the Ten Commandments. You think this must have some kind of universal relevance. It can't just be relevant to ancient pagan carved idol type people. So what does it say to people like us? Three lines for us to think down. Uh, Firstly, children's Bibles. Should we go over there and burn the children's Bibles? Question one. Sharon's looking nervous. Uh, Health and safety disaster, bookstore finances, everything. Uh, Well, don't worry, Sharon. The answer is no. Why not, though? Lots of the children's Bibles have, almost all of them have pictures of Jesus. And many of them have pictures of God the Father. So why is that all right? Well, read verse 4 of Exodus 20 in the light of verse 5. Verse 5 says, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. In other words, the issue is not with making images. The issue is making images for the sake of worship. The point is, don't make images to bow down to them. So the question is, is this painting, is this sculpture likely to lead or designed to lead people to worship for religious use? Well, no, in the children's Bible, it's, it's there to illustrate, to help a child's mind understand that Jesus is a real man. That's all. Likewise, I think most religious art, most paintings are all right. And nothing, no theme in all of human history has inspired so much art as God, and that is right. 
But I do not think, if I'm honest, that art like that should be hung in the front of churches, especially churches in traditional cultures. I have to say, I do not like that picture. I do not like it. I'm not giving you a license to deface it. I'm just saying I do not like it. And I'm not being all uptight, you know, yes, he's read the second command this week, so he has to get off. No, the point is, I used to be an apprentice, uh, and one of the things we had to do was was clean this church, which meant you spent quite a lot of time inside the building. Uh, There were some great moments. I remember um, some tourists coming in, as they do, and finding ACDC's Thunderstruck on loud enough volume to, to cause structural damage to the building and an apprentice lying on his back, he'll remain nameless, not one of the current ones, playing air guitar with a hoover in the middle of the floor <laughs> as a party of Italian tourists came to look round the building. But the thing that you notice, if you ask the apprentices, they'll confirm this, if you spend enough time here when people from outside visit, is that they do the same thing. They walk in, they wander around, they look for something pretty enough to take a picture of, they realise there isn't really anything in here pretty enough to take a picture of, and then invariably they come and stand in front of that picture and they pray. I don't like that because that is not Jesus. That is a picture of Jesus and that's precisely what the the second command says, don't do. We do need to be careful about these things. What about films like uh, Mel Gibson's Passion Film um, or the Jesus movie? I think they're all right. They're clearly not designed. I mean, it's pretty obvious that the aim is not that you hit pause on that and say your prayers to the screen. I think most people get that. I mean, I'm nervous because I've got to say, I don't like the idea of having a particular actor's face in my mind when I think of the Lord Jesus. It's not for nothing that the Bible gives me no physical description of Jesus. So it's all right to look at that picture, just don't ever pray to it, don't kneel down to it and don't encourage anybody else to pray to it. No matter how helpful we may think it is, it's not, because that's not Jesus, that's not God. But far more likely to get us in trouble is not the physical image thing. Uh, Far more likely is the second thing that I can't believe Jesus would ever say. And that is a live issue, I guess, for every single one of us in this room. Whether we would call ourselves Christians or not, we may not be tempted to make metal images of what God is like, but we all make mental images of what God is like. We decide if there is a God, he should not say, I cannot believe God would ever do. And effectively, we carve God in our minds and determine what God is and is not like. Someone once said that in the beginning, God made man in his own image. And ever since that day, we've been returning the compliment, molding him into a form that we find acceptable. A God I'm comfortable in believing in, and perhaps even more importantly for us these days, a God I'm comfortable proclaiming to people in this culture. And the rubber hits the road for you and me when we find the Bible says things that I am struggling to swallow. Either I find offensive or just difficult. You know, I read that God judges, that he hates sin and punishes wickedness and that there is such a place as hell. I read the Bible tells me that God has the right to, to tell me what to do with my body, who I can and can't have sex with and should have a relationship with. I experience genuine pain and suffering and chronic disappointment in life. And then I read that God says he's sovereign over everything that happens. And we read this stuff, and it just doesn't quite fit with our idea of what God is like. 
And obviously the first thing to do is check, have I understood the Bible correctly? Talk to other mature Christians who, uh, who live by the Bible and, and check, have I really understood this right? But very often I find I have, that I still don't like what it says. And at that point, do I submit to God recognizing he knows best or do I say, I cannot believe God would ever say that? So many, sadly, modern books, modern Christian books, start with an author saying, I just could not believe that would be right. But there are three big problems that um, hit us when we are tempted to do that. And the first is that we, uh, we trade a perfect God for a worse one. You see, you and I may not be able to see what we lose if we get rid of just this thorny, uncomfortable, awkward thing that Jesus says but ignoring this one thing can cause terrible terrible trouble you know I can't see what do I actually lose if I if I accept everything Jesus says but just not his sexual standards or what do I actually lose if I just don't have a hell in the way that I think about God and it makes so much more sense in my culture, to me, to, to think of God this way. And the problem is that we can never see what we'll lose because we are in our culture. It takes someone outside of our culture to see how stupid and foolish it is. A few years ago, um, a friend of mine in Knowing God group uh, had cancer and was um, at a hospital just over the river. And I went to see him during his chemotherapy. And every day he was taking this massive cocktail of drugs. And there was, a, there was a, something to take away the pain. Uh, there was something to stop the nausea. There was something to help him sleep. And then there, there were the chemo drugs. And they made him vomit violently. They made his hair fall out. And they made him feel horrific. I and mean, it was basically poison. The chemo drugs were really, really ugly. The other drugs made him feel better. But here's the thing. The chemo drugs were the only drugs that were actually saving his life. It had been very tempting to say, you know what, all the other things, they make me feel so much better. I just don't want to take those ones. You and I can't see so often what the possible downside could be of just going quiet on, just ignoring, just ditching this awkward, uncomfortable thing that everybody agrees is ridiculous. But is it not possible? Is it not possible that God might know better than you or me? Is it not possible that the very things that we just think are ridiculous and just, it doesn't actually add anything and so unimportant, is it not possible that that might be incredibly, incredibly important? If you don't believe me, uh, halfway through Mark's gospel, the end of Mark 8, Jesus asks his disciples, who, who do you think I am? He says to Peter, who do you think I am? Peter's been reading his Old Testament, so Peter knows that the Old Testament has promised a saviour king, an awesome saviour king who would have the power to say to a sick person, get up, and they would get up, to a dead person, come back to life, and they would do that. And, and Peter's seen these things. He knows that God has promised a, a saviour king, and he says, you know, the Christ, the Messiah. And so he says, I believe you are the Christ, the Messiah. And then Jesus talks about his death. He's going to be rejected by the leaders of God's people and, and put to death. The Old Testament taught that about the Christ just as clearly as it taught about the Christ who would heal and raise the dead 
and teach God's people. But in Peter's culture, in the, in the culture of that first century, that just, it's just ridiculous. No, you don't need a saviour king to die. You need a saviour king to save. He's got to uh, rescue you from the Roman oppression, get rid of uh, those who are ruining, destroying, killing, enslaving God's people. That's what you need. And so Peter's quite happy to ditch the whole kind of, oh, seriously, Jesus, no, that's ridiculous. When Jesus hangs on a cross, the the leaders say, how can you be the Christ hanging on a cross and dying? Their culture made it just unthinkable that you'd ever have a God, a Christ, who would die. What possibly could you lose if you just ignore those bits of the Old Testament that talk about the Savior King dying? The things that make no sense in that culture. What can you lose? Well, salvation. The very thing that Peter thinks it's, it's fine to ignore, to get rid of, is the only thing that will save Peter from his sins, the death of Jesus in his place on the cross. Is it not possible that you and I might be just as blind as Peter? Or are we so arrogant that we think, I see perfectly. Is it not possible that those very things that you and I think, I just don't see why it has to say that, might be as important as the things Peter wanted to rip out of his Bible. When we airbrush God to fit better our culture, we end up with a God who fits our culture, but not the perfect God who transcends all culture. And the God that our culture needs. There's another problem too of course. Which is how do we know we're getting it right? You see all the different cultures say so many different things about Jesus. I mean imagine you're sitting down with uh, a Bible. And a friend from a very traditional upbringing in the Middle East. And you say well there are, you know, we're, we're working out um, some bits. Obviously we're not sure the Bible really applies today. And you're reading through the Bible with him. And, uh, and you come to a bit where it talks about... Um, uh, God judging sin and uh, having saying sex is only for marriage. You say, well, obviously, um, you know, we, I think we, we've, we've kind of got a trajectory. So we've got a better understanding and we see that the Bible always, you know, didn't mean for us to stay there. Uh, you know, that was just for that culture. And your friends, what are you talking about? Of course, that's right. God must judge sin and sex must be only for a man and a woman. Uh, and then you read on and uh, you come to a bit where it says, uh, uh, Jesus says, Forgive those who persecute you. And if someone insults you and attacks you, turn the other cheek. And you say, you see this sort of thing. This is a a universal principle that applies for all cultures. Your friend says, that is ridiculous. There really is a God. There's no way he would mean that to apply. I mean, that's just completely nonsense, surely. Anybody can tell that. Whose culture is right? See, that's the problem. Is that we say, it is obvious that the Bible could not mean us too. God wouldn't mean for us to. Says who? What makes us so sure that our culture of all the cultures in the world, our culture of all the cultures in history is right? So we either end up being the most profoundly arrogant people of all time, saying we are the one culture in all history to get things right. Or we say, well, nobody really knows. There's Jesus is whoever you want him to be. Lastly, thirdly, of course, the Jesus who died to save us from our sins was the Jesus in the Bible, not the imaginary Jesus in my mind. If I want saving, 
the Jesus I need is not the palatable airbrushed Jesus of my imagination. It's the awkward, uncomfortable, controversial Jesus of history, of the Bible. Don't turn away from him to a comfortable Jesus you cannot save. And to be blunt, so what if he says offensive things? I mean, to be blunt, he can do what he likes, he's God. And what he thinks of us matters a lot more than what we think of him. He has the right to say what he likes and be who he is. Look, we're out of time. I'm not going to get into the, the, the third point. What about dance? You can ask me about that later if you want. But the, the basic point is this doesn't just come um, matter for how we think about God. It also matters for how we do church. The Bible gives us enormous freedom. But we work out what we do in church, not with the starting point of what do I like or what do the churches that really grow do, but what does God's word say? What does God's word say? We're under pressure. We're under enormous pressure to mold God, to carve Jesus. We're under pressure externally. Our culture, you'll, you'd have to be blind not to see it, uh, is telling us what, what we can and can't do and say as Christians. Let's not you know, get overly dramatic. No one's being um, cast off to prison in, in Britain. But there is a cultural pressure in every culture for Christians to, to adapt what we say and believe to fit what the culture wants. There was in ancient Rome and there is in modern London. And it'll always be the case. There's an external pressure to change our view of God to fit with what the culture around us wants. There's an internal pressure too. There are things I find costly and difficult about what Jesus says and I don't want him to say them. We're under pressure to break the second command. But here's the thing. God is God. I am not. God is perfect and I am not. Don't chip bits off the perfect God. Worship him. And one day, one day we'll see how good it is that God is the way that he is. And one day we'll see why he said the things that he said. The issue today is, will I trust him for the things I don't understand? Will I trust the God who came and died on a cross to save me from my sins? The God who rose again in history so that I'd have good, solid, historical reasons to trust him when I can't see him. Don't give in and don't give up on the God of the Bible. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you that you are not a God who can be carved or painted. You are far more wonderful than anything in all of creation. Not even the sun and the moon and the stars, not even men and women, nothing, nothing physical could get close to the the wonder of who you are. And so we pray that you would help us to, uh, to allow your word to shape our thinking about you, that we might know you as you are, not as we uh, attempted to think of you. And Father, help us not to give in to our desire to make you more palatable to our culture or my heart. Help us to worship you as you are for who you are. And Father, give us the strength to resist those pressures. Thank you, Father, that uh, for our failings to do this, 
We are forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ, but help us by your spirit to love and worship you as you truly are. Amen.